Welcome to Green Tea, sustainable stories from Bowdoin's campus and beyond. My name is Holden Turner. And I'm Juliette Min. Green Tea is a production of the Office of Sustainability at Bowdoin College, sharing the perspectives of students, staff, and community members. Hello everyone, today we have Justin Bauman. He's a professor of ecology at Bowdoin College. Um, it's very nice to have you, Justin. Um, can you introduce yourself really quickly to our listeners and also describe your role at Bowdoin? Sure, yeah. Uh, so my name is Justin Bauman. Uh, I'm a visiting professor in the biology department here at Bowdoin College. This is my second semester here. So it, it's obviously been a little bit of a strange year, considering that I started during the summer of COVID and haven't haven't been in a classroom yet. My my role at Bowdoin is uh, mostly a teaching role. Uh, I'm doing active research and I'm teaching, but for the most part, I've been doing uh, a lot of teaching. So I taught the Biology of Marine Organisms course last semester in the fall, which is supposed to be a field-intensive, field-trip-based course. That obviously wasn't how we did it. Uh, we can talk about that if, if you're curious. Uh, and then this semester, I'm teaching a course called Research and Ecology, Evolution, and Marine Biology that's about exploring research careers and uh, thinking about careers maybe outside of academia within sciences and ecology in particular, uh, and building skills like science communication, grant writing, uh, and things like that. And, and that course I, I built based on actually on student feedback. Uh, it's, a, it's a course that's more or less required for people in the ecology, evolution, and marine biology concentration here at Bowdoin. So I reached out to those students who might be taking the course and asked them what they would want out of the course. And we built it based on their feedback, which was really cool. Um, and then my perspectives in ecology class is a, is a class of my own design that is a really fun interdisciplinary kind of eco-feminist based uh, look into climate solutions and climate leadership and kind of this, this particular moment in time. So we're reading some sci-fi we're reading some fantasy, we're reading some like uh, nonfiction anthologies, and uh, it's been really fun so far. And that's a class for non-majors, so I thought that might be a really nice way for people to interact with the science. Um, and then outside of the classroom, I'm a coral reef ecophysiologist with a focus mostly on Caribbean coral reefs and how they respond to climate change. Uh, I'm also excited to translate some of that research into the Western Atlantic Atlantic coast and to play around in the intertidal this summer with some students. That is all super awesome. Well, thanks for introducing yourself. We've got a lot to dive into with all of that. Um, but first, I do want to circle back to what you suggested. Can we talk about how you translate your field trips into uh, web-based classroom experiences for students this last fall? Sure. Yeah. So I was really fortunate in my first term here at Bowdoin to be paired with a very experienced and wonderfully nice and patient human uh, lab instructor named Beth Whalen, who folks that are familiar with our department will be familiar with. She was really excited about trying something new. And uh, she and I kind of came to the ideas together and started pushing for this idea of maybe we can take the field trips and make them into virtual field trips. So she and I did the field trips and I just carried around a GoPro and followed her around while she taught me all about the intertidal. You know, I grew up in Ohio, which is a landlocked state, obviously. We have a, we have a lake, but, you know, we don't have an ocean. And I'm a marine scientist and how that happened is a long story. But, you know, I study the Caribbean and I have no experience in the intertidal in Maine. In fact, I had been the only place I had been in Maine before I accepted this job, sight unseen, uh, was Old Orchard Beach. And I had been there for a, a couple of hours ever in my life. I had never really experienced the rocky intertidal. 
So, and I was teaching a class that was all focused on rocky intertidal ecology. So, you know, I have the ecological knowledge, but I hadn't been to the place. So Beth took me to the place and taught me all about it. I just recorded her and it was awesome. I learned so much. I got really sunburned and we had a very fun time. Uh, and then we decided, you know, since the students couldn't get to the field and we couldn't teach them those field skills that we would try to teach them some other skills. And those skills were focused really heavily on science writing and on data analysis. So we actually taught, instead of doing a lab, we taught programming. So I taught all my students how to use R, some for the first time and some were better than me at it. It was, it was a fun experience, but yeah, I mean, you know, this is, if I've learned anything over the last year, it's that you have to be flexible. You have to be adaptable. And, you know, that goes for, for dealing with climate change and climate solutions, just as much as it has to do with like figuring out how to do your job in unprecedented times. Yeah. It seems like you took a very difficult situation and you turned it into something that was super interesting and a really wonderful learning opportunity for students. If my uh, marine biology professor taught me R, I think I would be, I would think that's a big win. Um, I'm curious, since you were from this landlocked state of Ohio, what got you into studying marine biology and you know ecology? Great question. A lot of people have this origin story where it just, you know, I don't know if, I guess if you're not a marine biologist, this doesn't happen to you. But when I talk to people in public all the time, I always wanted to do that when I was a kid. Wanted to be a marine biologist when I was a kid too. Like I love dolphins. And I'm like, hmm, yeah, dolphins are, are cool, I guess. I, I thought they were interesting when I was a kid. I was fascinated by things I didn't understand. And I feel like there's this, there's this part of your development where you get really interested in stuff you don't understand. And you ask a lot of questions. And I just didn't really, st- I, I must've been really annoying. I didn't stop doing that. I, I had a twin brother who's a science teacher. So I feel like, you know, the two of us together must've just really been a pain in the butt. Uh, but, you know, to, to talk about like really why I'm a marine biologist, especially like focused on coral happenstance. And I feel like the more I talk to people about how they got where they got, this is what they always say. It's like, oh, it just kind of happened to me. And, you know, I, I wanted to go into science. I was really interested in it when I was a kid. I was pretty good at it and I wanted to get good at it. I just took a bunch of science classes and kept on trying to do things. And I was really interested in the oceans. I was, I was interested in a couple of other things too. Those things were dinosaurs when I was really young. I thought dinosaurs were the coolest in space. Yeah. Who didn't love dinosaurs, right? So I love dinosaurs. I love space. I love the ocean. And then I saw Apollo 13 and I was like, space seems scary. Let's, let's not do that one. So I still think space is cool, but I'm, I'm not probably not going to go there. And that's, that's okay with me. Uh, the dinosaur thing. I don't know why I'm not a dinosaur person. Like, I don't know how that didn't work out. The opportunity just never happened. I guess I was more interested in things that were living and trying to figure out like how they worked. And I also at a pretty young age realized that we had this issue where like the whole world was changing from like an ecological perspective, um, specifically because of climate change and because of what we were doing and that from like the Captain Planet days up to now always really bothered me. And I wanted to be part of that solution. And I wasn't sure how to get there and and, and I'm honestly still not, but that's sort of what drove me into this direction. And then the only reason I'm like an ecologist now, when I was an undergraduate, I took ecology because it was required for my major. A little old round bearded man taught me all about fire and how fire was really important for forests. And I was just like, this is a paradigm that I thought was completely the opposite of how it is. And I just was so interested in it. It's so fascinating how things aren't what they seem. And I think that that is like really fun and interesting to think about. And like, there's so much to learn and so much complexity. I I was just like really interested in it, super hooked. And uh, ever since then, I've been pursuing 
ecology in a marine sphere. Uh, and then how I got into corals is there, I was at Ohio State because I grew up in Ohio and, and football. That's why I'm at, I went to Ohio State, like everybody did. And, um, you know, it's a big school. There's lots of opportunities. You can basically do anything you want. You can be who you want. It's great. So I was like, I want to do research in marine biology. And there were three people working in the ocean. One person was working on rocks and basically how glacial debris travels. Great guy ended up being a really good mentor for me, but I didn't want to work on rocks. Another person was working on anemones and their like molecular biology and molecular biology scared me. Uh, the other person was working on coral reef biogeochemistry and I literally had no idea what that meant. But she told me, you know, come to lab and you can start working for me. And I just didn't stop for a couple of years. And that's how I got into it. Like I had never seen a coral. I had never been snorkeling. I wasn't scuba certified. I'm an awful swimmer. Like, let's be real. I'm a terrible swimmer. <laughs> uh, I only have one functioning shoulder, really. Like one of them has been dislocated so many times it doesn't work anymore. So it happened by accident and it was a happy accident. And now 10 years later, here we are. You know, it's good to hear. It's a kind of story uh, along the lines of anyone can be a scientist. And I guess that's true. I absolutely agree. So I understand that you, when you were in Ohio, you didn't do very much uh, swimming in the ocean and doing a lot of exploring a lot of the coral reefs, but um, we saw your website and we saw a lot of really cool pictures of you uh, being able to do, engage in that type of research and getting uh, hands-on with the coral reefs. I believe that's what it was. Um, can you share more about your experience with, the, with uh, coral reef research and like, maybe your favorite story or experience um, in your research expeditions? Yeah, I, I guess we kind of set the scene with like, I, I'm not a great swimmer. I'd never been scuba diving. I've never even seen a coral. Yeah, so how did we get to where we are now? It's fun. Yeah. This is a great podcast story. <laughs> I've always wanted to do this. This is fun. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we, in undergraduate, I, I grew up playing sports. I played sports in undergraduate. I was on the ultimate Frisbee team at Ohio State. And uh, those of us who, who participate in that sport at an intercollegiate level consider that to be a relatively serious pastime. I was pretty into it. That's how I hurt myself, by the way. Uh, you know, be careful with your extracurricular activities. <laughs> They're very expensive. Uh, but, you know, I was doing a lot of that and I was, I was having a great time and I was learning a lot about myself and I was getting to, you know, run off some of my energy and uh, I was also working in the lab a lot, and all of my research as an undergraduate was in the lab. And I worked in the lab as a volunteer for like a year. Then I came to find out that that the team was going to Mexico to do a project. They had gotten a National Science Foundation grant. They were going to go to Mexico and do a project. I'd never been to Mexico. The only time I'd ever left the United States, I was in Canada. And they said, you know, why don't you basically watch the lab for us, do some lab work, take care of things, and in the second half of the trip, you can come on down. So I was like, yeah, great, awesome. I, you know, the only coral I've ever seen has been frozen and in a plastic bag. I don't even know what these things are supposed to look like in the wild. I've never been snorkeling. So I bought some snorkel equipment. All of it was crap because I didn't know what I was doing, right? Like I, I was just like, let's just go to the home store and buy some snorkel equipment. And uh, I went to the nearby lake and in Ohio, the lakes are, are brown or, or even darker. So, you know, I put on the goggles, I put on the fins and like, I grew up on this lake and uh, that's, I guess, part of the reason why I like the water. I was like, yeah, I'm going to learn how to snorkel. And I like looked down, I couldn't see anything. I don't know what I expected. Right. But I was just like, yeah, now I'm wearing goggles. Like I can see now. Mm -mm. So I'm in the dark in this lake and I'm like, uh, what am I getting myself into? 
Also, what happens when there's waves or like when it's too deep for me to like stand up? <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, and I went to the field and, uh, you know, I got off the, off the plane and my boss uh, came and picked me up from the airport and was like, we're going back, drop your bag. And then I'm taking you out on the boat so you can help me do some work. Uh, I want you to get your feet wet and see what this is all about. And I like almost drowned just like trying to snorkel back and forth between the boat and like 20 feet down. I'd never been that deep in water before. Yikes. So scary for me. Uh, and the boat captain only speaks Spanish and I only speak English. And he's like trying to talk to me. And I, then eventually he's just laughing at me because I'm like at the surface, like coughing up a lung because I don't know how to use my snorkel. And I'm too afraid to tell my boss. And it, it could have been better. I could have been more communicative, but he saw me almost drown. And uh, then he didn't trust me anymore. And, you know, I, I did grow up on the water. I grew up on boats and I grew up sailing. So I was really good at knots. So I was in the boat, like, I'm going to make myself useful. I'm going to tie all these things up. I'm going to tie all these knots. I'm going to tie all these buoys to our markers. And like, it's going to be great. People are going to think I'm actually like useful as long as I stay in the boat. And maybe they'll let me keep coming on these trips. Mm -hmm. Every single knot he, that I tied was good. He untied all of them and retied them because he didn't trust me. Cause I was, I didn't know, basically I didn't know how to swim <laughs> uh, and deservedly so. So, you know, that was my first field experience, but I saw a reef for the very first time. I saw a reef at night for the very first time. And it was just so cool. Uh, and now when I started my PhD a couple of years later, uh, I still hadn't been scuba certified and I went to North Carolina, had never really been there before, except for to play Frisbee, started working with, with a new professor who actually was Belizean. And I walked into his office the first day and he said, Hey, Justin, you know, like, I'm glad you're here. Like you're my first ever graduate student. So we're going to figure this out together. And I was just like, <laughs> cool. Yeah. <laughs> and it was, it was very freeing for him to just tell me like, do whatever you want. Like, I want you to do something related to coral reefs and I want you to do it in Belize. Any questions? And I was like, where's that? <laughs> like, I've, you know, I've never been to this country before. What's it like? What do I need to know? And he was like, oh yeah, it's just home. You'll figure it out. And I was like, it's not my home. I don't, I don't know what to do. He kind of threw me in off the deep end. I was like, sink or swim. So I was like, I guess I better finally learn how to swim. Uh, so I went and got scuba certified and you know, since then I've been back to Belize at least once a year, I would say, or into the field once a year doing, doing some dive work. We usually take like seven to 15 days in the field. Uh, and we work most hours of the day. Uh, we spend a lot of time underwater doing various things. So you asked for like a, a, a particularly good story. I guess I gave you like my scary, how I got started story, but you know, <laughs> since, since then I've become a lot more comfortable. I've led my own dive expeditions. I've written my own grants and you know, I really, I really grew into it. And it's something that I'm, I'm really grateful that people were willing to take the risk and to let somebody who was completely untrained come in and flounder around until I figured it out. And I was given a lot of space to do that, but I was also given a good amount of support to do that. And I'm really grateful that that has all happened. And I'm looking forward to paying that forward in the very near future. I would love to get some students out into the water uh, as soon as possible. I don't know when that's going to be, but I think it would be really great to take some students down to the Caribbean. Um, when the borders open up, when the money comes in, I got an experiment that I haven't seen in 18 months that I would love to see again. <laughs> so. Oh no. How's the experiment? Do you have any idea? Yeah, I have a, I have a local collaborator, which I think is essential. If not, you know, it's maybe the most important thing is working with people who know this, know the place and, you know, know the ecology and, I think parachute science is a really dangerous thing. Um, and that's sort of a different kind of question. But at, at the end of the day, yes, I have, I have local collaborators and friends who do check on my stuff and 
we officially ended the experiment, but we still have some corals that are kind of in transplant treatments in the reef. A good number of them died. Unfortunately, there was a really hot summer last year, uh, and some of them that were in a really stressful environment didn't make it. Uh, but she did email me and say, hey, you know, we have a, a handful of, of living fragments. We'd love you to come do some restoration with them, or we'll do it. You know, let's talk about it. And we're still trying to figure out how to make that work logistically. But yeah, they're out there. Very cool. Can you tell us about perhaps your favorite type of coral or a coral that really speaks to you in any way? Yeah. So, you know, there, there are a good many really beautiful corals. <laughs> My favorite coral people who know me know where I'm going with this is, is not one of those corals. Um, so those photos that you saw on my website and things, you know, they're, they're great. And there are a lot of corals that are, there's a lot of photos of me and my team and, and my friends with like a big brown rocky coral thing, it just looks like a big brown rock. That coral is called the massive starlet coral or Sideroastria sideria. And it's our favorite because it's really good at not dying. It's a very resilient coral which makes it very useful for scientists, right? We can mess with it, we can cut it up, we can move it around. If we go someplace where there could be corals, it's alive. And in the Caribbean, that's the one we can count on to pretty much live through anything. So it's really useful as like a lab rat coral and uh, it's just a really hardy coral. Like we joked like kind of at the end of times, which unfortunately might be fast approaching, this coral will make it. And all the other corals in the Caribbean might, might not. So that's my favorite coral. It's, it's not very charismatic. <laughs> but it, it's very versatile and useful. I might ask a more technical question was, which is, um, does its lack of charisma mean it's more resilient? That's an interesting question. I don't have time to give you the thesis version, but okay. in, in short, I guess there's a correlation between those two things, but it is hard to prove whether one caused the other. There's this idea, and this is really general in ecology, of life history strategies. And there's life history strategies of, of organisms that are like weedy, that are really good at growing fast, staying small, reproducing early and reproducing a ton. And those in coral terms would be like, they stay small, they take up space like really quickly when there's new space opened up mm -hmm. and they don't try to get big. They just like spew out gametes and hope for the best. There's those, there's competitive species of organisms that grow really, really fast and just try to shade everybody out or out compete for space. And those are the big branchy, pretty looking corals. They look like big giant trees uh, or big giant elk antlers, for example. And then there's stress tolerant corals. And those corals, their whole purpose in life is just like, let me just hang out. I'm just gonna live and not die. And if I have some energy left over, maybe I'll throw some gametes out and we'll see what happens. As long as I don't die, then there's a future for me, right? And that's Sideroastria sideria. And those corals tend to be massive. They have a, a surface area to volume ratio that makes them basically big and round. They are really not very exciting. They don't even have this one in particular. It doesn't even have like a brain shape or anything. Like it's, it's nothing to look at. Yep. There you go. It's that's it. It's just a round red rock. It's showing us a picture of corals on her phone. We'll add this picture to the bottom of our website page so that our listeners can uh, look at the picture and be entertained also. Yeah. So, you know, uh, in Panama, a boat captain of ours used to just call them big reds and he was pretty sure they were pretty much just rocks. Um, and that's, that's what they look like. So in the end, you kind of did end up studying rocks. Yeah. Yeah, I did. You're right. And sure. Yeah. I was in a geology department for a while at Ohio state and I taught geology, like hard rock geology for non-majors. And now here I am like sort of studying rocks. Like it's an organism that's a plant 
an animal and a rock all at once. So it's really fascinating. So you touched on a little bit about how coral reefs have, I guess, informed or they were a medium through which you explored climate change. And it seems like your class, um, the Seeking Solutions to Challenging Problems, explores a lot about human environment relationships and climate change. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about this class and um, about these relationships and how they lead to climate change and what we should be thinking about? Sure, yeah. So my research is directly focused on how coral reefs, especially in the Caribbean, respond to climate change on a variety of scales. You know, I'm interested in like a global scale response uh, and a community ecology scale response. We're also interested in how individual corals grow and how that's different based on the stressors that they see. And then like even deeper into that, how the individual, like, how like energy moves through that individual symbiotic relationship, that coral and that algae. Um, so, you know, we're thinking on all these scales about how climate change is affecting these organisms and trying to understand like how we can manage them and whether restoration is effective and what kind of tools we might try to use. And, you know, at the end of the day, we also always come back to this in the end of our papers and at the beginning as well in the intro and in the discussion, we say a lot of things like, well, we know corals could be resilient sometimes. It really depends on the scale of the problem. And we also know that coral restoration could work, but also it doesn't scale that much relative to the amount of, of you know, global scale damage that climate change is causing. So at the end of the day, you know, all of this research is showing us new things, but we still already know what we have to do. We have to reduce our emissions. And so, you know, I grew pretty disenfranchised with doing the work and not doing any of the advocacy and not trying to push for those solutions. And I, I wanted to be, like I said, part of that solution. And, and I find myself consuming media, reading books, listening to podcasts, thinking a lot about this intersection of, of climate change and all these other problems that face our world right now. You know, there's lots of intersectional issues uh, with climate change and natural disasters and inequality and equity and racism and classism and everything. It's all a big ball of connected everythings, right? And you know, I, I found that we as scientists weren't necessarily dealing with all of that quite enough. And we weren't we weren't engaging enough to like put forward real tangible solutions. So I started working in policy a little bit to see if I could make some moves uh, in terms of like understanding like what policies might help us get on the right track for emissions reduction. And I started to realize that since everything's so connected, what if at a liberal arts college like Bowdoin, we taught it that way. What if we talked about climate change in the context of all of these other ideas? So I started putting together this idea that maybe I started reading a lot of books over the beginning of COVID. Uh, one of the first books I picked up was Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower, uh, which, which I'm holding. Uh, we're reading it in class right now. I would say it's probably like the book of our time. It was written in 1993, right after the Rodney King race riots in LA. And it feels like it was written yesterday for us right now. And it's also about the year 2024 through 2026. So it is so prescient. Um, so I read that and I'm fortunate in my household that my wife is a physicist and a really nerdy sci-fi fan. And she's also an author. She's Her sci-fi trilogy is coming out in a couple of months. So we started talking about how we could use sci-fi as a medium to like explore these really critical ideas of society and these different theories and these different futures. And you know, we went through some of our favorite recent books and I put together a class with a couple of things in mind. Uh, as I started coming into Bowdoin, we were really having these very public and very open conversations about 
racism and anti-racism in particular. And we were also having all these conversations about just diversity and equity and inclusion. And I wanted to make that part of my class. So I said, you know, we're, we're not going to go to the sci-fi tropes and we're not going to, we're not going to read the classics. We're not going to read like the old white guy sci-fis. We're going to read other voices and we are going to center other voices in this conversation. And we're going to go out into the climate and science world and we're going to find those more diverse voices and we're going to bring them all together. And that's, what's going to build our class. So we started with parable of the sower, uh, and it ended up not being the first book we read, but you know, we, we started with that idea. And I also, at the very beginning of the pandemic, read Robin Wall Kemmerer's Braiding Sweetgrass, which is a really great step into kind of an indigenous point of view. Uh, it's not without its faults, but it is, I think, a great first approach to understanding indigenous point of views and traditional ecological knowledge within ecology. We also added Ursula Le Guin to the, to the stack because she's the best. Uh, the Word for World is Forest, which is a really very interesting sci-fi book. Uh, and then a really wonderful climate anthology just came out at the beginning of the year, and it's called All We Can Save. And it was written by Ayana Johnson, who was our kitty lecturer here at Bowdoin a couple of weeks ago, and Catherine Wilkinson. Um, I guess I shouldn't say that they wrote it. They edited it. It's an anthology written by 40 women. So we have a 100% female cast of characters writing from a bunch of different perspectives. So the class has sort of gotten this eco-feminist moniker. Um, that's not like officially in, in the syllabus, but that's, that's where we ended up with it. And uh, it's been so fun to listen to these students come from all across Bowdoin and really put their liberal arts education to the test and bring in their economics and their history and their other majors and their interest in science and they're not interested in science and really start thinking about these issues. And you read the most amazing stuff when students think that way. It's been really interesting. I've never done anything like this before. That's wonderful to have all of those different majors and perspectives and backgrounds in the room together. I mean, you get a bunch of bio majors in the room and you'll have some amazing conversations that come out, but then you add on other people with their specializations. It's wonderful. Yeah, I get a lot of philosophy that I don't understand. Wow. They're very smart students. <laughs> um, I'd like to ask if you could circle back a little to the um, term ecofeminist, because I've come across that uh, a, a little bit in my um, environmental studies background, and I'm not sure if Julia, you've come across that, but it's not a term that necessarily gets thrown around a lot uh, in everyday language. So, Sure. Yeah. So I, I find this very, very popular idea now, I think, in the environmental science space and in the climate solution space that they're should be this restructuring of power dynamics. I heard Ayana at the Kibbe lecture say the other day that, you know, there's room in the movement being the climate movement, the climate solutions movement for everyone, for anyone who thinks that there's room in the movement for everyone, right? Which is very like inclusive, call in, uh, sort of the tenets of, of feminist leadership versus a very hierarchical, there's like one like king at the top, very like masculine uh, sort of style of, of leadership. And, you know, I think it's safe to say that that particular style isn't the most effective and that the status quo doesn't change often when power is consolidated in such a way. So the idea of ecofeminism is to, to look at ecology and look at environmental science and problems within that sphere and solutions within that sphere in a different lens to understand that we could distribute the power and we could make it so that it's more of an inclusive space for all. And the idea of feminism isn't like women should dominate men. It's like there should be equality like what a difficult concept. It, it doesn't have to be that scary. 
I think. And I think it's really valuable to learn. And there's there's some sections on all we can save that are talking about this, that like eco-feminist or feminist leadership doesn't have to come from cis-identifying women. It can come from anybody who buys into the idea that people should all be able to be involved. It's really simple as that. And it's very egalitarian and it feels pretty natural to, to me. And like I said, I didn't really mean for that to be the point of the class or the, the focal like idea. But when I started connecting the dots, that's the thing that stuck. Everybody was writing about that just in different ways. Well, that's a simple and straightforward definition of, as I've heard of it. And good on you for teaching that. I would love to get your syllabus after this, after this is done so I can start reading some of the books on there. Sounds fascinating. Yeah, I agree. It seems like the way that you have designed your course has made it so that pretty much anyone can come into your course and feel that they can um, contribute or get started in um, learning more about ecology and about biology. And yeah, I love that. It's so made, it's made so readily accessible for every student. That's really wonderful and props to you. It's been the goal anyway. I, I'm, I'm interested to see what the BCQs look like to see how this is, is going. From my perspective, I think it's going really well. Um, but it's really hard to assess, you know, we're entirely remote and uh, the, the science-y part of, of the class is, is there, right? Like we do readings, we do discussion, they write, I, I grade their writing, I give good substantive, well, I'm trying to give good substantive feedback on everything they write, but I'm still learning how to do that. Uh, and then I, I lecture on ecology concepts, you know, teaching them the basics and then also working through when we're thinking about ecosystem restoration, like what's the goal? How was the ecosystem before it got messed up? And can we go back there? And we've had really interesting conversations about thinking about the past and the future and trying to come to a conclusion of what's sustainable moving forward, which I think is really valuable. And then we're also talking about climate solutions, but but it's I'm interested to see what the students think. I feel like it's it's a, at least a good idea and it's been really fun for me. Um, so I, I hope that they're all learning a lot. I hope so too. Now, science fiction and fantasy genre that has kind of fed into your course, that's all about imagining futures. Is that fair to say? Yeah, for the most part, you know, I would agree that it has a lot to do with with social commentary in a space that sort of feels slightly disconnected so that you can be a little bit more critical without basically getting anybody too upset with you, I, I feel like. Um, I can give examples, but yeah, there are a lot of like, let's consider a near future or a far future. Yeah, I think that's a fair thing to say. Cool, could you give some examples of how, maybe a favorite criticism of yours that has come out of the reading so far? Yeah, I mean, like I said, I it just boggles my mind every single time I think about it and every time I open Parable of the Sower, that when I'm reading this book, it feels like this could be us right now. It's sort of a, if the election had gone a different way a couple months ago and things happened for three more years and got worse and worse and worse, and we just did nothing about anything, any of the problems, we'd be in this place. Doesn't seem that far-fetched. And the, the lessons learned about having your head in the sand or being really insular and not changing your ways, even though you could see the writing on the walls that things were going badly. I think it's just a really cautionary tale. It's a parable, right? It's a very good cautionary tale. And it's, it's a really, it's not a very fun book, but I think it's very, prescient. It feels really real. There's another book that isn't on the syllabus that, that I thought about. And it's, again, not without its problems because that's that's media. Um, the Wind-Up Girl by Paolo Bacigalupi, which I actually have happened to have sitting on my desk, is all about a far future uh, in the East Asian continent, subcontinent, 
And in the city, which I don't want to give away too much, the city in question is actually basically underwater because of climate change. And they've built a really large, uh, unnatural kind of walled structure to keep the ocean at bay. And then the way that people feed themselves is basically from like really overly GMO'd food. Uh, one of the other reasons we didn't include it is because I, GMOs are complicated and I didn't think we could get to quite unpack that, but essentially it was like runaway Monsanto takes over a sea level risen world. Uh, and it feels less realistic because there's a quite a bit of fantastical elements to it. Uh, but it, it does this great sci-fi thing where it questions what it means to be human. And then it asks us like, why are we like this? And it's just a really interesting thing to explore. Uh, so I, I thought that that one was a little bit more sci-fi heavy. And I guess the last good example I can think of is that there's this really wonderful trilogy that literally everyone should read, written by N.K. Jemisin called The Broken Earth. It's the best sci-fi trilogy that I've ever read. I've, I've read a lot of books. <laughs> I don't know. I can't, give, I can't give enough praise to the author and to the series as being super incredible. And it is about a far future Earth where runaway climate change and geology have happened to the point where we have a new supercontinent, right? And human civilization basically was destroyed and it's starting over from like very early on. Uh, and there's a, a lot of, uh, there's a lot to unpack there about the way that we are to each other and to this planet. And it's so good. And can I ask what you're reading right now, if you have the time to read anything? Sure. Yeah. So I just finished uh, Ceremony by Leslie Marmon Silco, which is uh, a really interesting I've been I've been trying to read more indigenous authors and and ceremony as an exploration of inequity uh, in, in indigenous culture basically in in the United States, which I, I think is really good. Um, and it focuses specifically on New Mexico area uh, of reservation land. So that's what I just finished, and <laughs> this is going to be kind of funny. I'm actually reading for the very first time Virginia Woolf's to the Lighthouse uh, right now, <laughs> so. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm in a bit of a, a classics uh, kick right now. Um, I'm just trying to cross some things off my list that I thought were that were kind of crossing my mind from from this class that I'm teaching that I hadn't read, um, just so I could gain that perspective. My students are bringing these things into the class, and I I couldn't help myself; they sounded too interesting to not read. So yeah, that's where I'm at. It seems like you're reading a lot of sci-fi, and I know uh, these are a lot of sci-fi contains these like cautionary tales that you were just speaking about. And I don't know, I feel like it can get pretty disheartening at times to be constantly um, putting that material in front of your eyes. And I'm wondering um, what gives you hope um, when, when you're reading all of these books and you're thinking about um, what, what, might, uh, the, what the future might look like. Great question, what gives me hope? So. Uh, the the youth movements that are happening in the streets and in the classroom and in the minds of the people that I see and interact with all the time, you know, myself and younger, for example, really gives me hope that there's people out there who are inheriting this problem and these problems and that they care deeply and that they're thinking critically. And if somebody would just get out of the way, the new leadership is ready to deal with the problems. That gives me hope. And I don't know how to make the political mechanisms crank in a different way, but that gives me hope. I will say also that I'm kind of a, I'm sort of nihilistic and negative by nature, pessimistic by nature. And, you know, when I was reading like classic literature, uh, I was gravitating toward really depressing stuff. I was really into Steinbeck. I was really into Dickens. Like, just give me that deep, dark stuff. It makes me, makes me feel good for some reason. I don't really know why. Maybe I'm weird, but it is true that sometimes I have to put down that stuff, but you know, there's great satire out there in the world as well. Um, 
my wife and I are rewatching The Good Place right now, for example. We just watched all of the X-Files from start to finish and there's like 11 seasons and it's almost all pretty pretty bad, but it's a really interesting exploration of like the genre of sci-fi. So like, you know, we're just big nerds. We just think it's it's interesting. But there's a lot of darkness out there and I do think feel like there's some value to kind of staring down the problems and thinking about them and sitting with them and sort of accepting the fact that they're like real and they're not going away even if you put your head in the sand. And I think that there's value to that. I will say kind of like the ecofeminist framework and the the anthology All We Can Save is a lot more hopeful. Uh, there's a lot of like, here's what we can do. Here are the coalitions we can build. Here's the solutions that have happened and that are working. And like, just we can do more. That gives me hope as well. So there's a balance there, right? Between the the cautionary tale and the hope. And, you know, it, it's not all really depressing. There's some stuff out there that's just for fun and like more explores like questions of philosophy and like what it means to be a, a human and you can go that way sometimes. You don't have to stare down this really scary abyss of, of danger in the future, for sure. Yeah, and I imagine um, working with your students would also be something that gives you hope as well, since these are the youth that are that you were mentioning who are really thinking about these questions and thinking about what is natural or what do we want our future to look like? Yeah, for sure. And and to, to read what they write and to hear what they think uh, in our class is is really inspiring and makes me feel like we're at least starting these conversations and, and these students are, they, they came to the table wanting to know more, right? Like when I started my climate solutions unit, they were like, what about this one? What about this one? Like, let's ask these really difficult questions about the economics of these solutions. And I was just like, I wasn't ready for like non-majors to ask me majors questions. Like, hold on, let me like, let me do some research. Uh, you know, like it's, they challenge me. And that's one thing I love about being at Bowdoin is that like everybody I interact with, students in particular, really challenge me to like, I have to know what I'm talking about. I have to be prepared, I have to be ready. And like a lot of times I have to say, I'll get back to you, I don't know. And, and I think that that, the amount of knowledge transfer that's occurring is really inspiring for me. Yeah, there's always a bunch of ideas floating around and it's, even if at times it's a little stressful to be on our toes all the time, it's in the end, sometimes I come, at, come back from a class and it feels like my brain's full. It's, it's really cool. Well, Justin, now that we're talking about the future, we want to turn to our last question for you, which is the question that we ask everyone on our program. What does sustainability mean to you? Yeah, that's a deep question. Um, I, so, I mean, there's like a textbook definition, right? There's the idea that whatever we do, the thing we're doing, we have to be able to keep doing it pretty much forever. Um, and if we keep doing it the same way, it has to keep being able to be done, right? So, you know, when you think about the way that we extract to build anything, uh, to burn fossil fuels, to, to build our infrastructure, to build our renewable technology infrastructure, to build our batteries, you know, all of that, that. There's a finite amount of those resources and they're not coming back as fast as we're pulling them out. It's not sustainable. The amount, of, the amount of different kinds of food we eat, the amount of different kinds of ways we grow them, not sustainable. It, it's hard to think of sustainable things. It's really, it really is. Uh, you know, Buying compostable packaging, not sustainable. More sustainable than the alternative, not actually sustainable. So I feel like, you know, sustainability as a concept has been sort of co-opted by like all of these corporate entities that are, are pushing a, a slightly better, but not really better status quo, right? Like if I have a compostable bowl and I put it in my trash can because I can't compost my compostable bowl without an industrial composter, it's still going to go to the landfill and it's still not going to break down. It is no better than the alternative product. Like, why is that okay? 
So I think there's a lot of things that sustainability is not. And I feel like it's really important to keep in mind that sustainability really is like, I should be able to keep doing this thing basically forever. And we don't have a lot of things that are like that. And that concerns me. So I guess my definition of sustainability is really more like, here's what I think it's supposed to be. And here's how we fall short. So I guess that goes back to my kind of pessimistic personality, unfortunately. I think that's a very fair definition. And, you know, one of the um, guests we had on the show earlier this this season, he said that all academics or at least academics in this sort of vein are all a little bit anarchic in a way. And so anarchic pessimism, both of them are kind of laying the structure for something new in the future. I hope so. Yeah, I hope so too. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us today. It was so wonderful to hear about your entire journey into uh, marine biology and um, about sci-fi and um, how you are, you know, becoming this uh, leader and mentor uh, teacher for all of the students here at Bowdoin. It was so wonderful speaking with you. Thanks so much for having me. It was really fun. This is, I don't get to think about this very much. Like, like why is it all happening this way? It's not something I, I do like on the regular. So I really appreciate you being interested and, and hopefully it, it's interesting to your, to your listeners. Over the course of the spring 2021 semester, Green Tea will be sharing stories from students, staff, and community members around Bowdoin College. Stay tuned for more episodes and thanks for listening.